You are listening to Working File, a podcast about design practice and its relationship with the world. My name is Andy Mangold. And I'm Matt McInerney. On this episode, we're joined by Robin and Chapel to discuss the Bloomberg Business Week redesign and see where that takes us. Why is it so weird? Wait, it's not weird anymore. It's not weird. Why is it so normal? Why is it so normal? Well, another day, another piece of software that updated against our will. Right, Matt? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. I'm so excited. The last time it updated, I waited like two years, but this time it doesn't It doesn't give you the choice. It's kind of weird that they can just change a thing on you, right? Yeah. I, 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 know, I know I cringe every time I go to work or open my computer and it's like, ooh, new Adobe Illustrator. I'm like, oh, crap. I wonder what's wrong with this one now. Mm-hmm. But uh, they just change your tools on you. I haven't used so... With my new job, I got an uh, an Apple laptop, and it was the first time, because previously I was in government, which is all PCs, so I got back to an Apple, which is, of course, my computer of choice, but it's like a new world to me Mm. all over again, because the Mm -hmm. last time I was professionally using an Apple was like 2006. That is very different. It's very different, and I cannot believe like the amount of updates there are. It it's anxiety, anxiety never inducing, ending. never ending. It's a nightmare. It's a lot. Isn't and this a fun thing to complain about? Oh man, <laughs> I think yeah, everybody I mean, loves everybody loves a good designer podcast talking about software updates. Guys, what do you think about Adobe Acrobat? Huh? It just keeps getting updated, and it's never any better. What's the deal? Honestly, like all of that stuff, I just, they, they've got to be like masochistic or something. Like they just love, it's, it's bad. I don't like it. You can imagine being in the room where that all happens though, right? I sure well, can. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's like constraints happening or whatever, but it like, it's honestly like Microsoft Word and Adobe Acrobat are competing for the worst program. Like it's mm-hmm. like they're in competition with each other to see who can do it worse. Word is really bad. I, we, when someone sends us a Word document, there's no telling how it's going to be translated into a normal text editor when we open it and all kinds of things are going to be wonky. Yeah, man. It's like, I, I work at a company to develop software. I am normally a huge advocate for upgrading your software and updating it when an update comes out because there are good reasons to. So when I'm like, sure. maybe no, that's a, that's a bad <laughs> sign. I feel like I'm, I, sh- I should be an easy sell updating the software. And yet I am not when it comes to certain companies. Right. Robin, you're joining us like mid cross country move. You're sitting amongst boxes. I'm picturing you like sitting on top of one taped up box and you've got like your computer's the last thing on your desk. How, how's the move going? Yeah, that's actually pretty much it. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I left Amazon last Tuesday and then I flew to San Francisco and I gave a talk for the Spectres conference. Then I flew to New York and I found an apartment in Brooklyn and then I back to seattle last night so now i'm here oh my gosh Jet congratulations center. on the new job by the way i know i know i tweeted at you and emailed you but here in yeah, person yeah. very right. exciting yeah yeah i'm super stoked it's gonna be fun i told i told robin that we're we're gonna be neighborhood work buddies and we're gonna like recreate the intro to laverne and shirley and just like <laughs> skip <laughs> around <laughs> we're gonna skip around some factories down there sounds wonderful yeah we're gonna be neighbors <laughs> I know it's well. It's a really it's a good work neighborhood. I mean, there are some complaints, but there's definitely good coffee and a lot of 
really good spots. And Etsy, of course, has a lot of great people. So for sure. Yeah. When I, um, when I was down interviewing, I needed to, to go there, uh, and just like work on slides or whatever. And I remember I was like hopping around coffee shop from coffee shop and they were all really nice, but they were all outlet. Like they didn't have any outlets and like, I hate being the outlet person. It's like the worst thing in the world. But like, I, I was, I didn't plan on having to build a deck. So I was there and I had like this old computer that had bad battery life and I was building my decks there. And I kept having to be that person who walks into a cafe and be like, Hmm, outlets, no outlets. Okay. And I'll leave. I did that like four times. It's, it's like the worst nightmare of my life. It's awful. We are hitting all our core demographics. We talked about updating <laughs> Adobe Acrobat. We talked about Brooklyn coffee shops. Like we are just getting right down the line. We're checking all the boxes. This is That's good. It. Yeah. Actually, now that we have transcripts, you can just Google. You can just Google those search terms, and you'll come up with our podcast. If those are the things you're interested in, right. our podcast is like SEO optimized. Exactly. This is going to be great for our Google results. Way to go! Avocado toast. <laughs> Avocado toast. <laughs> Those millennials. This is really going to do a lot for our page rank. Maybe we'll go up to a, to a three now or something. Yeah, that's great. Should designers code? People still care about page rank. Is that a thing people care about? What's page rank? Is that like a Drake thing? I don't <laughs> yes. think it's a Drake thing. Page rank used to be this thing. Oh, page rank. I thought you said page drank. Like it was like a little John drink. <laughs> page drank. Yes. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Gotta improve, gotta improve our page drank. Ship it. All right. So now that we've covered all the important stuff. Uh, right. Let's move on to our filler topic, the fluff. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about kind of the uh, the presence or absence of like a weird sensibility in the design world. And Chapel, I, I'm actually would like you to kind of explain the sort of roots of this because we're, we're responding to a change in the Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, this is kind of the the seed of the conversation. We're not going to talk about. Bloomberg Business Week the entire time, but uh, we're responding to a change in what appears to be their art direction. And for those people that haven't seen Bloomberg Business Week before, don't know what we're talking about, like how would you describe the change that the magazine has undergone? So it became at the current state of Bloomberg Business Week, if you saw it now, it just looks very much so like an average business glossy magazine that would be sitting on a coffee table. I mean, cleaner, a little bit more interesting than, you know, maybe Time magazine was uh, before it ended. It's not in print anymore, is it? I don't think so. I think Newsweek was out. Yeah, I think Time still prints. Yeah. Oh, Time still prints Newsweek. That's hard to keep up, guys. Uh, <laughs> so the issue is that for a while, I would say, what was it, three years maybe, Bloomberg Business Week kind of underwent this transformation into just kind of letting the creative direction go wild. And I want to say it was under, was it Richard Turley, I think. You are correct. Yay. Before Named, went to MTV. <laughs> my foot, ouch, dropping names. Um, <laughs> and so well, I, barely, I barely know anything. I had to Google everything before this. Um, so anyways, uh, under his direction, Bloomberg Business Week, became pretty outrageous in terms of design, in terms of uh, the context of mainstream magazine design. But it was outrageous enough that it was honestly the only uh, print magazine that I got a subscription to in probably the past decade, because it was just weird. It was strange. Uh, it would, you would be reading an article on, you know, uh, the Chinese stock market, and they would have like flying pigs with googly eyeballs and cacti <laughs> and like the type would be set on squiggles. It was very, very much so um, out there 
in a lot in the terms of of a lot of uh, mainstream art direction. You see, do, do you think it's unfair to say that the art direction was kind of like almost internet aesthetic? I always felt like it looked like the internet more than a print it look, magazine. It looked like should. what Snapchat would do with a magazine or something. Yeah, you know, but it was proto proto Snapchat, right? Uh, yeah, it was like around the same. Nah, same time, same yeah, time same period. Time. I'd say. I I don't know. Like it was. Um, I felt like all the design at that point, like it was Richard Turley, but it was also like Allison McCann and Jennifer Daniel, right? So like yeah. they yeah. knew they they the design department knew what it was, and I don't think any of those people are still there anymore. But like no. I know Jennifer's not. It was like and, they uh, Tracy. they knew enough rules to break it. Yeah, Tracy too. Yeah, Tracy Ma. Yeah. Yeah, Tracy. Yeah, so it was clearly they were breaking the rules right. in a way. And but what was really fascinating about it is there's so many magazines out there that uh, in kind of more niche design magazines that if they did this, I wouldn't blink an eye. But this right. is a magazine that is being delivered to CEOs of major companies. Mm-hmm. And you would see this in waiting rooms of like small towns. You know, this is a this is not just some niche East Coast magazine necessarily. Yeah, it's not Lucky Peach. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. R.I.P. Uh, rest, yeah. In, rest in peach. So that was what I found really appealing about this. But at the same time, I was like, what would it be like to be some super like Connecticut, you know, businessman who's flying in on his hydroplane and about to land to go to the stock market? And he's looking at the cover of this magazine and there's just googly eyes everywhere. I wish I could film that reaction because you know so many of these people had to be like, what the hell is this? Because <laughs> it's a serious finance magazine. Like, the yeah, information yeah. in it and the stories are great. And that's another reason I, I subscribe to it. It wasn't just the design. I actually kind of want to learn about the world, too. But, um, so yeah, it was something wholly unique and original. And yes, that lasted for what seemed three years. And now... They've tossed it out for a much more uh, straightforward approach. Very austere and minimal. Yes. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but this month's issue is uh, an issue that has a photo of Tim Cook on the cover. And it's, you know, like basically right now, I would say the cover of Bloomberg Business Week is like the art direction is photography, right? That's the whole thing. Like We're going to have mm-hmm. good photography and then like the typography is going to recede into the background crystal goblet its way out of your out of your mind and you're just going to you know be engaged in this big photography and uh it's interesting that you know this month is when they're kind of unveiling the new design i guess uh, or at least it's more minimal and one of the most famous covers under their previous art direction one of the most out there ones was also a cover of tim cook where it was this kind of like almost alien photo of him smiling in a little bit in otherworldly way and this like big uh, you know, diagonally set cursive font in neon <laughs> colors, like writing his name across his face on the cover, uh, which I remember when that cover came out. And I remember defending it to all of my my friends who, you know, don't work in the design industry. And for once, felt like they had something to talk to me about. They're like, hey, you're the graphic designer. What'd they do with this thing? What a real, you know, what a real barf pile. Defend it to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of designers are in uh, in your shoes, Chapel, where it's like, oh, this is the one thing maybe I subscribed to, or at least you know was following, and now they've kind of gone the way of every other uh, magazine, and it'll be impossible to tell them apart from the Economist or whatever because it's just the same old thing. Um, yeah. Well, I don't. I mean, I think there's a balance because there were times in which 
the kind of crazier design of Business Week could it sometimes encroached upon the writing. And sure. I'm coming from a space of a writer more than I am uh, as a practicing designer. So words are super important to me. And there were times that I was reading it and I was like, you know, this is kind of actually feeling like it's taking away from the writing. Interesting. That's right. But like also like I think in their case, and I think with most designs case, like it's a collaborative effort, right? Like writing and mm-hmm. design. So like it's it's about how they carve out the, the narrative, the story. So like if the design or the photography like creeps into the words, like I think as long as it's like a collaborative effort between the, you know, the three, that makes sense. But what's weird is it probably like it might not be right. Like I can't, I don't know many media publications that our designer will send the layout to the writer and be like, this is, you know, what I'm thinking. So uh, yeah. I'd be interested to see how that went down because it it's about crafting the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely imagine. I, I certainly imagine that a more expressive and kind of uh, you know, out there, for lack of a better word, design sensibility in the art direction of the magazine is not going to be you know mutually exclusive to making the writing clearly understood. I'm, I'm sure there is a way to do it where your you know really interesting and expressive graphics just enhance the writing and make it more understandable because of the way you're calling it out and you know kind of complementing it. But there's also, I'm sure, a way to do it such that it's not, and it actually is detracting and kind of drawing attention away. And I have to confess, I've never subscribed to the magazine. I've only seen, you know, nary a, you know, photo or two of a spread every now and then, and like some of the covers over the past three or four years. So I'm actually have had very little exposure to it. I couldn't speak to whether or not that uh, sensibility was helping or hurting the actual content. So I would defer to, to Chapel's, you know, opinion there. Yeah, I'm not saying it's kind of, I understand when you talk about weird quote-unquote weird design, which I think is funny to call it that. Uh, when you talk about that, I, th- I really think it's important to be experimental. And honestly, if you have some sort of mainstream publication that's opening the floodgate to the designers and saying, you know, go buck wild, you take that and you run with it because that is rare, right? Yeah. And that's really what we're mourning, right? Like, it's not that we're mourning that this yeah. was the most beautiful, interesting magazine of all time. It's that this was a huge publication that, you know, had all sorts of motivations to keep subscribers and appeal, like you said, to all different kinds of markets. And yet here they were, you know, kind of throwing their weight behind a more experimental approach, which I think feels validating as a designer. It feels like uh, there's still room to do interesting and novel work in print. Uh, And so to have that kind of taken, I think is what most people are mourning. I don't think people are like, that was my favorite magazine. I loved it so much. And now it's ruined. I think they're just like, (laughs) oh, that was, you know, one bastion of uh, experimentality we had in the more kind of corporate business world that we've, we've kind of lost. Yeah, I would suspect the majority of people who are mourning it, like, didn't even actually read it or subscribe sure. to it, just saw it as uh, a, that there is one place to go do weird stuff in the corporate world. Oh, now it's dead. Now we have no examples to point to. Yeah, I mean, you do have to know your audience at a point, And I can... I'm not looking at their demographics or probably the many decks of research they have around that, but I can bet that that design was not targeted to their demographic. And that's well, hence, hence the swing back to, you know, they, the, um, I was reading, I can't remember who it was, the new, if it was the editorial director, I can't remember, but they said that the redesign is getting rid of all the irony. And I thought that was just like, really fascinating because if you're kind of a visual design nerd insider like we are 
you you look at stuff like that and I know there's a hint of irony in that weird design. There's so much like kind of too cool for school, weird kid, weird art kid irony. And I think that could be really off-putting for people who are not a part of that world. You know? Interesting. Well, actually, I mean, to be honest, I, I, it's kind of off-putting even being in that world. Like I, <laughs> like, I appreciate, you know what I mean? Like, I appreciate that that exists, and I, I really enjoyed it while it was around, but, like, like if I had to ask myself, like, do I want to stand for that? Not mm-hmm. really. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to just be weird and ironic for the sake of doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. Not that I think that's exactly what we're talking about, but I think you're right that there's a hint of that in there. Yeah, it's, and it's also, it's also interesting from the perspective of, like, I believe, like, everything comes to an end. Everything is, comes and goes in waves and cycles. And what's going to be interesting is that something like that three-year era of Business Week is actually now this time capsule of really that peak weird design that was going on in those, in that time. And that was like every portfolio, every designer's portfolio was starting to look like that. And, you know, all the kids coming out of the European schools, out of Yale, like all of them, like they bring in their portfolios and for better, for worse, uh, they would look like that. And so it actually does encapsulate a movement in graphic design. And so from like a historical perspective, I think it's awesome that designers can work within these like capitalist you know job frameworks and find a way to express themselves and then it becomes part of the kind of communal history if you will Hmm. um which i mean is a very positive way looking at it i have i have similar to matt i have major problems with uh when i've had to hire or work with designers uh in in my professional life who kind of subscribe to that aesthetic it's a massive problem it almost always is it's not for a mainstream consumer and if a designer makes something for me with that aesthetic and i have to take it to my boss i would get fired so it, it is there's a bigger problem there i mean there's part of it that is like in some ways disrespectful if yeah like the entire point is to be ironic, mm-hmm. um, which again, like I don't want to, I don't want to make this all about Business Week. I think we can move on a little bit and just talk about the idea of like weird uh, design. But uh, yeah, I think ironic design might be a better way of putting it. It's like that Urban Outfitters thing where it's like you, it's bad on purpose, right? Well, um, so something I want to be careful about is, first of all, I'm, I'm curious as to like what makes this ironic. Like, is it just that? The, this design sensibility is kind of throwing out what a lot of people would consider to be like core pillars of graphic design and well, therefore like, it must it's be... like the opposite of what you'd expect it's the opposite of what you'd expect from a professional designer like it's taking from like i feel like you're like looking at a tumblr page full of animated gifts or something and like you were like oh yeah because that's what a that's what an amateur would do and then it's taking from that language and so it's this the, i think we're calling it ironic because it's not what you'd expect from it's the opposite of what you'd expect from a professional well, I mean, I think a lot of the things, especially the Bloomer Business Week stuff, was extremely well executed, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. it's not something you can just do as an amateur. It, it's not a sign of uh, of being inexperienced. And I got to be honest, like, I question the idea that, uh, I question just assuming that it doesn't appeal to a certain market, right? Like, I, I almost feel like assuming that business people really like photos with like steely blue palettes and (laughs) white gothic text it's kind of the equivalent of being like oh this is for girls let's make it pink and cover it in flowers like i I don't know what age you get tired of seeing 
seeing googly eyes on pigs, right? Like for all I know, a bunch of rich people <laughs> flying around on planes like love that stuff. Um, I, I think it's more of this like hang up we have about like not being taken seriously, right? Which is the, yeah. The, there's this concern that some people won't take it seriously. Therefore, like we have to. That, that's honestly, I feel like that's kind of the roots of all like all like modern graphic design and minimalism is like we're going to do as little as possible to give as few people as possible any excuse to not take us seriously because we just did this you know we barely touched this we like breathed on it and therefore you know we're, we're, we're kind of staying out of it as much as possible being unopinionated so I, uh, do we have any evidence to suggest that like that's actually what wealthy people that are like the let's say the most important audience in some ways to something like Bloomer Business Week that they actually care about that or are we just assuming based on everything we've seen in, you know, culture already? I mean, I guess I can use an example because, you know, I, I totally agree with you and believe we should not assume, you know, a very wealthy businessmen are into some weird shit. I think we can all agree. <laughs> um, uh, no doubt. But, fact. fact. But I can use an example of... Uh, at some point working in the government and working around a bunch of different designers there. And, uh, I had, I had to work with a designer who, uh, would have a style that would be much more in line with, with the old business week and what we've been talking about. And when this designer would create something, it would similarly look like, uh, like Matt was saying, uh, the opposite of what you'd expect from a professional graphic designer. It might be, uh, you know, it would look like something. The feedback from the client would be, this looks like something I made in Microsoft Word. Sure. And Word art. Word art. And so in the government, when you are paying a lot of money to hire professional designers, and they're giving you stuff that looks like your daughter's quinceanera invitation, you get frustrated very easily. And in this, because government is its own culture, and there is some expectation of respecting the audience by organizing the information in a way that's very clear. Because if the government's anything, if we want it to be anything, it's here are clear, simple instructions to help you. And uh, so in that context, trying something like that it's it's unexpected there and in a bad way and it doesn't go over well with the audience because they're steeped in that culture and there's there's you know and this is government so it's not like the best example because we have expectations of being clear to Mm -hmm. uh to like our our populace um but there are just times when it's it's not appropriate or respectful in a lot of ways uh, like, you know, Matt is saying, there are times where you kind of worry. I would worry as a designer if I was respecting my audience. I think I'd think about that all the time because I would sure. want to balance experimenting and having fun and doing weird stuff if someone's letting me. But I also want to make sure I'm not going over the audience's head in a way that makes them feel stupid because that's that's the design. For me, that's design at its worst is when the audience feels stupid. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, again, I think this is actually helpful because we're not talking just about Bloomberg Business Week here because I, again, have barely even seen it. I'm I'm kind of talking in the abstract about, you know, the idea of the things I've seen. And I guess I just, I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. Like you just, you kind of describe two different things, right? One thing is like someone that approaches a problem and they have like a, 
you know, a preconceived style they're going to apply to that problem, maybe regardless of the content, right? They're just like, mm-hmm. this is what I do. I do squiggles and I do fun gradients <laughs> and here is squiggles and fun gradients on your thing. And oops, that's the cover for Princess Diana's death. That's not really, not really appropriate anymore. Um, so that I think you can, we can make a kind of, you know, assessment that that doesn't, that doesn't work, right? Regardless of whatever your style is, I think the whole point of being a thoughtful designer in any editorial context is kind of approaching things with the understanding that each story is kind of different and needs a kind of a special treatment. And so maybe part of the problem here is just that, you know, the consistency of the playfulness and of the, you know, kind of breaking the rules, quote unquote, in the Business Week stuff was just so, happened so often that we have to assume it wasn't based on the content of the stories. It was actually just, this is what they wanted to do. And so they kept doing it. Um, but I have to imagine like there, there would be a way to basically, you know, take the same approach that maybe we're thinking a more classical or more traditional graphic design approach would be uh, and like, you know, read the content, think about it, think about the, the subject matter of the issue. And, you know, then just when you're trying to express that, just like give yourself a little more slack, right? Like instead of just yeah. using a typographic grid and, you know, these, you know, safe colors over here in the safe color palette, uh, you know, just use a little more and you could still be, you know, somber and you could still be uh, excited and joyous and you could still be, uh, you know, scary if you wanted to be, but you'd be doing it with a kind of broader palette than you would be otherwise. But maybe that's not what's happening. I, I just, I think well, like... Can Andy, can you, you, I think you brought up the term weird. Like, can you describe what you mean? Like, are you talking about a style of design or are you talking about an approach or like, what is, what does weird even mean to you here? Um, to me, when I talk about weird, uh, I think I'm kind of working backwards. And I'm saying that anything that I think, basically what Chapel said, a client would say in like a presentation, like, what's this weird option? Like, like that's what I'm talking about. Things that, <laughs> things that are, don't meet people's expectations, uh, especially those people that are in like positions of decision-making power. Uh, that's kind of what I mean by weird. And anything that kind of breaks out of those bounds. I do think that the, the best kind of quote-unquote weird work is comes from an experimental mindset, an experimental approach. It's not just, you know, out there for the sake of being out there. Because I think the thing, the thing I dislike is, like, uh, this specific style that we're talking about that seemed to take place uh, for a period of time in the last couple of years. Um, like, taking a weird approach, I think, is great. Like, a new exp- like, it's weird because you haven't seen it before. Awesome. If it happens to do the job better, even better, right? Um, it's more that I think, like, applying the same style to something over and over again is just... It's actually kind of boring, right? It's not like uh, it's not exciting to do it for the fiftieth time um, and just like have all your work look the same, right? Um, I mean, I think in regards to like uh, business week for me as a designer, like that stuff was like the the coolest thing. I mean, I remember buying it because I thought Jennifer Daniel was super cool, and I just thought like those squigglies are really cool. Um, I'm sure at some point somebody that like I'm I'm guessing at some point there was somebody in leadership at business week that said. The data from X month in 2012 was better than this date from this point. So we want to push mm-hmm. the design in this way. Like, I'm guessing that's actually what happened. Um, but in the process of that, like, we lost our cool design aesthetic in this, like, one place that felt like a win. Like, I think all the visual designers were like, wow, what a win in Bloomberg Business Week because they did it. So maybe we can push it. Um, but, like, statistically speaking, like, you know, if Business Week sold a lot less through that and like Lucky Peach, which is another one that pushed those boundaries, also dropped off and like Good was pushing it for a while too, but they dropped off. Like maybe oh, it's not perf- like maybe yeah. it's not performing as well as we actually think it is. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not cool and great to look at because I think like that um, brings like 
a print sort of narrative together in a lot uh, better, more interesting way. And like, not that it was just print business, we pushed it on web too. But um, I think it's a balance from like us feeling like we got a good win in visual design versus um, like what data like pointed to them, telling them that they're actually selling more copies of this thing. Um, so I'd be interested sure. to see that. And then I think like, you know, in regards to that idea of just like, you know, sort of like uh, saying like pros for the pros for the weird, right? Like, like it's cool to have like these sort of experiences. I mean, Chapel's kind of right in that, like the delivery could be like a lot stranger than like what the desire's intent is. Like, I mean, this is like a super dumb in real life example of this, but like, so uh, I'm in the process of moving, right? And uh, every I've moved five times in the last four years. And at every move is when I cash out all the coins that I was like left that I've collected <laughs> in my spare change. Um, Fun ritual. Yeah. So today I have like a flower vase versus coins. And it's like I get super anxious about it because I hate walking into a physical place and like going into a coin star and dishing my coins in, right? It's like the worst experience ever. And it doesn't help that coin star like, they their design includes like this like noise of like a jackpot like when you're actually dishing the coins <laughs> oh. and I, like I think at some point like somebody was just like yeah I bet you people think that this sounds like they're winning the lottery when they're cashing in the coins and it's probably getting people to do it more um, but for me like it was the worst experience ever because I could hear is like somebody be like hey kid you're in poverty as like this jackpot is going down and it's just like you know that sort of uh, horrible feeling but I, I do think like that's a, a situation where some designers probably like, oh, this is weird and good. It makes people feel good. But in practicality, like it sucks to use. So context <laughs> matters, right? Um, so <laughs> to wrap I, I wanna, up, yeah, that, that whole thing. <laughs> I, I want to come back to what you said about uh, like possibly this design underperforming, right? Right. Uh, and I'm curious to ask each of you, and I'll start with Matt because I think I know his answer, but you're the designer, you're in the room and they're saying, look, our goal was X. Maybe it was sell as many copies as possible. Maybe it was make this writer happy and feel like we represented their story correctly. Maybe it was appeal to a certain market. We have the data back and, you know, this out there design just didn't do it. It didn't perform as well as this boring design. Uh, Matt, are you going to defend that in that room or are you just going to say that was our goal? We didn't hit it. Time to change plans. Probably the we didn't hit it. Time to change plans. Like I'm I'm pretty interested in trying to achieve the goal. So if if I tried something and failed, I'd rather admit that I failed at it and try a new thing than like I like I don't know what I'd be defending. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. if the goal was to make a, an interesting and new design and everybody's excited about it, awesome. Then I achieve the goal. But like if that's not the goal at all, I, I don't even know what to defend at that point. Mm-hmm. Chapel, you're in that seat. Are you going to defend that design somehow or um, jump ship? Well, it's hard. It's hard to say. I have. I work as a content strategist, so I would go to strategy first, and I would want to know all the variables of that month and what yeah. was going on to know if there's other things that could have caused a downslide um, in sales. Like I would be. Are like, we allowed to say this is a black and white example and just it just failed? Sorry. It oh, just, if it just failed, well, let's assume. Yeah. Let's assume in the abstract you had all of your variables and yeah. the, the 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 results are decisive. It's like, well, you know, we have this perfect A/B test. We put half this cover on newsstands, half this other cover, and this one just sold 60% as much or whatever. Yeah. Uh, no, I would straight up want to change and grow. But again, it's difficult for me because my ego is not tied to being a graphic designer. 
And that should make it easy for you. That sounds like a good thing. And so yeah. it's a good thing. So I'm very, I'm very willing to be like, let's, ch- let's change it up. Let's switch it up, you know, but that's because it's not my day job, shall we say. Uh, if but I've owned that, I think it could be a lot harder to let go of the style. This is me being too empathetic, honestly. Yeah, but I think like also if not your a problem. Goal, also, yeah, thing. yeah. This seems all like positive things. You're saying Chapel's <laughs> biggest problems. I'm too empathetic, and I'm not. I'm not egotistical about my work. Uh, Robin, I assume you're in that position. Maybe also not going to defend this thing, or do you have something to say? If all the data points to no, are you going to defend that somehow? Uh, I mean, I think I would set it from the beginning. So, like. I think I would have very clear understanding of what my success metrics are from the beginning. And if I can get buy off that it's not money, then I push it even farther. Cause like there's the assumption of like whether a design working is whether it's selling or whether it's not selling. And sure that's the case in some standards, but like if like their success metric is getting a younger audience to read and they're selling less, but more people who are younger are reading it, then that's, that feels like a win. So somebody's sure. going to make a trade off at that point. So, um, I think at some point I would set at the beginning, just like here are success metrics of like, whether we think this is good or whether we think it's bad. And like, if we lose sales, then we're okay with that. So from there, then I would say like, all right, and we're giving this like a, you know, six month timeline and we're going to test it and see like how it performs. And then we're going to make a decision on, on how we iterate from there. Um, so I, I think for me, it would just be a super iterative process that um, bases on like what, what matters to the people in the room right so sure that, that's how i do it yeah i want to stand up a little bit just for the things that can't be measured uh you know i think maybe all of us to some degree uh kind of were drawn to design because it was a thing that had a goal and the goal was something yeah. you could determine if you were successful at and that was maybe a little more structured and in, in, in that way uh more helpful than fine art where you make a thing and your goal is to make people feel a certain way or do something, but there's no ever, there's no real evidence that you've done that necessarily. There's no real way to, you know, iterate on your process and find success. But I, I, I do want to stand up a little bit for the fact that, you know, there are things that can't be measured. Uh, and if you, you know, you sold 60% as many copies, but you somehow with all powerful omniscience knew that the 60% of those copies you sold went to people that were, you know, much more engaged with it or went to people that, uh, you know, despite having no demographic differences, were just like more interesting, you know, smart people. And they were just, you were attracting the right people, maybe not, you know, more people or something. I think there's always something, at least where we stand currently and probably forever, that can't be measured. And I think if our job is only doing the thing such that it performs the best on the metrics, whatever we set those metrics to be, then it's not long before we're replaced with machine learning and computers that just spit out a million different covers and determine which one's going to perform the best and put it on the newsstand. And uh, I, I personally don't believe that that's all design is. Uh, you know, I, I love the practicality of it. I love having a goal and aiming for it and being able to measure success. But uh, especially in things like editorial, I think there is there's more there than just what can be measured, um, which is not to say that I'm going to sit in that room and try and convince people to let me put more squiggly lines on Tim Cook's face. but uh, I, I do think there's a fair number of people out there that would, would feel that way. But I think I think the difference is like if we're looking at numbers that are just so clearly pointing us in a direction, I think you have to listen and admit when you're wrong, as opposed to like ah well we sold a couple less it's not it's nothing major. But also like look at all these news articles popping up about how great the design of our mm-hmm. new magazine is. Like I think I think that's a different situation. Um, and I also think like 
the scenario we described where where the evidence is just so clear like i'm very rarely in situations where everything can be measured like i feel like for the most part somebody just says hey we should a b test it because they can't make a decision dude that's a horrible thing if people are a b testing stuff because they can't make a decision that's so bad it happens sometimes also like (laughs) as a separate thing i think uh this goes into a different thing but that whole idea of like designers being like let's a b test that i think like it's super um just naive because like i would like i just don't think an a versus a b is a strong enough thing like i would set like a let's set a control then like a like a one state a two state and a three state um because if you want to test things testing if you just want to figure out like an a b test like that's just lazy testing and in the future let's do an episode about how the majority of things we say we test are bullshit I would love sorry, to do an episode B- on testing R-B-S, someday. RBS, because we yeah, exactly. that you're out. Have to, you're going to have to bleep <laughs> that yourself later, Mr. I of the show, and you swore. Dang it, me. Uh, yeah, I would love to do a show on testing. Um, that's a whole thing that I have a lot of thoughts on. I know some people like kind of specialize in it. Their whole thing is test-driven design, which is a whole kind of different approach. To be fair, I love testing. I just think I like good tests. Right. That. Same. <laughs> the correct tests. The right thing yeah. to test. <laughs> um, yeah, ultimately, I feel like in some ways, you know, Part of why I feel like I want to stand up a little bit for the thing that can't be measured is that if you look at any creative industry, and in this regard, you, I think the design of an editorial magazine or publication is definitely creative, but it's creative and also practical in the sense that you are selling a magazine that's communicating information as opposed to perhaps purely creative industries like television or movies or something where there is no like practical goal other than selling movies and stuff. But <laughs> if I think if you look at other industries, if you ever have a situation where people basically say, well, we're going to do what performs best or is most popular, you arrive very quickly at not the best television and the best movies, but in fact, the worst. Uh, because a lot of times when you test things and, you know, do all your metrics on, you know, what's basically testing so often comes down to and by, by testing, I don't mean A-B testing. I mean, like having a value set that values like a practical goal oftentimes based in sales, so often comes down to like offending the least people and not doing something interesting such that you're really engaging the remaining population. Uh, you know, I, I always, Matt, Matt, Matt in the past, we, you and I have talked about the idea of just if you, you know, care too much about that stuff and focus too much on like how things perform, you end up making the two and a half men of everything. <laughs> you make the two and a half men of, you know, publications and the two and a half men of websites and uh, yeah, you know, millions of people watch it every every week, but no one really loves it. <laughs> they just watch it because it's on and they don't actually think about it. And if that's the same thing, if you're making this, you know, boring magazine cover that everyone buys because it's on the newsstand and it's got that story they care about, but, you know, no one loves it. And again, I don't know if that's the case. We're using Bloomberg as this continual example because it's convenient, uh, not because I think any of these things are necessarily specifically relevant to that example. But uh, if, if that's the case, if it's a matter of like, you know, trying to appeal to everybody and in the process, you know, not really having a, a deep relationship with anybody. Uh, I think that's another reason to do something that might perhaps be considered more experimental or more controversial. I mean, controversial is another word that we can use to describe these things. Uh, some people love the squiggly lines on Tim Cook's face. Some people probably thought it was ridiculous. I mean, I there's sometimes I do enjoy some order in design. But sometimes I sit around and I think about the tyranny of design (laughs) and it makes me wild. And the fact is, I could litigate any side of this and any point of view of this, because, again, I like to I like I like to hear both sides. But 
I do think it's important to celebrate anything that breaks out from the freaking tyrannical grid that is design. And the problem is, like, as most of our society is, sadly, everything is black or white. Everything is binary. Is binary mm-hmm. And we're doing ourselves a total disservice. And honestly, right now, it's like we really only still have two schools of thought in design so far as western design goes one is helvetica grids and the other is you know soupy weird stuff and basically (laughs) and basically you know i know there weren't podcasts in the 90s necessarily there were just radio but if there were podcasts in the 90s we'd be having the exact same conversation about like david carson yeah, I think it's like, disrespectful that he said it in Wingdings. I think that it's <laughs> exciting and experimental. Right? I mean, and it's like, looking back at it, some of it is, you know, Stephen Heller called it the cult of ugly. And a lot of people referred to it as ugly. And they thought, who would like this? This is disrespectful, blah, blah, blah. But my God, I mean, don't you just want to break out of the grid sometimes and like sure. express yourself and do something that isn't just you know, a right angle and, you know, Helvetica. And so I really do want to celebrate that as much as possible. And, and cause when you walk around this planet and you look at everything that we create, you know, AKA not nature, and you look at all of it and you're like, Whoa, stuff is so straight laced. It is so <laughs> like, yeah. It is so mediocre compared to what I think humans could be capable of. And the sooner we can break people out of boxes, you know, the better. But I mean, that's, of course, very optimistic and and lovely. But it's really funny that we can even sit here and designers can get upset about like maybe one magazine changing things up a little bit, you know, and it's like... Yeah, I mean, we can literally do anything now. We have computers. We aren't even setting type in a little box anymore. Like, we can literally do anything. And uh, still, we have magazines that still have, like, gutters and drop, drop letters, drop case. And, all, and you're just like, wow, we're still, we're still repeating the same stuff that's been going on for centuries. It's, it's kind of like sad sometimes and also cool because it's tradition i don't know i have a lot of mixed feelings <laughs> you're all over the place i'm mixed i really i know i'm a gemini you, y'all i'm a gemini um, <laughs> well, well part of what gets me about that and uh you know part of why i mentioned the business people maybe still looking googly eyes thing is that i feel like because the culture of graphic design is one that sprung out of corporate america and sprung out of advertising and sprung out of capitalism that the whole culture of graphic design is to make things that people think will appeal to people in suits, maybe flying on a Learjet, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at like what we consider core founding principles, uh, that's what you end up getting is the kind of work that, you know, is clean cut. It's unoffensive. It's, you know, it's, it's the establishment. Like we're, we're designing the thing that looks like it, it's the established thing. And that's like a value that pervades the entire industry to the point that Matt earlier when he was talking about this was like, oh, you know, this is something that was like some animated GIF. This isn't even graphic design. This looks like something that you would just find if you looked up animated GIFs on the internet. When of course it's graphic design, like it's still the same thing. We're using the same tools. But when you venture even just a little bit, and honestly, compared to to Ray Gun or to, you know, Emma Gray, the, <laughs> the Bloomberg Business Week thing is like totally tame. Like it's, it's barely experimental at all. It just uses some bright colors every once in a while. Uh, but as soon as you stray even a little bit away from 
this like, you know, pretty utilitarian, like brutal aesthetic that everyone has decided is what graphic design with a capital G and a D is supposed to be, then you, you know, all of a sudden you're disrespectful. You're, you know, you're pushing people away. You're being totally experimental and off the wall and crazy. And and, and I, I agree, Chapel. I feel like why is there not more variance allowed for within what most people consider the safe bounds of graphic design, right? These things can be executed well. They take skill to make. Uh, they do express more things more vibrantly than grids and, you know, grotesque typefaces. Uh, and, I, and part of me is, part of me mourns that when I see the magazine change back. It's like, well, there there goes another thing that, you know, at least we could have learned from, right? Uh, <laughs> something, something I always say that, uh, I don't know where I heard it first, but it really resonated with me, was that like, Oh, you know, if you're if you're in battle and you fire a mortar and it lands too short, uh, when you fire the second one, it better land too long, right? Like if you're <laughs> if you're adjusting your aim, you don't <laughs> want to be too short and then too short again and then too short again because it gets way harder to actually hit your target. And I feel like all of graphic design, like ninety eight percent of it, you could clump into the like way not experimental enough, right? Like <laughs> not pushing the boundaries enough, totally square inside the box, like completely boring and sterile. And so when we get that 2% that's like maybe going a little bit further such that we can maybe find a happy medium somewhere where we are using more of the tools available to us and we're more stretching our language, our visual language and our, our tools to do something interesting. Uh, it, it doesn't like offend and like push people away. Uh, as soon as that happens, you know, it exists for a few years and then it gets kind of, you know, cut back. And here we are, you know, firing all of our mortars short again and nobody's being expressive. I mean, that's, that's capitalism. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just goals and meeting, meeting new goals and trying. That's that's what logo redesigns are. It's it's just meeting goals as we were previously talking about. But did you did y'all see the um, the there was a Twitter thread? I don't remember who started it, but Eric who came in and and just gave this like amazing impromptu graphic design history lesson. He's always dropping knowledge on Twitter. He's amazing. He needs his own he needs his own show. Um he and I will maybe I can get the link for you guys so you guys can link it. Uh I can find it again. It was actually all stemming from your tweet originally. I, it, I yeah, it actually You started been. the thread. Um and but he put in all this like he screen capped like his own writing on it and it was amazing and I won't uh, try to summarize too much of it, but he did talk a lot about how uh, in the 1960s, starting around that time, there really was this split that occurred in graphic design where you just you had the camp that really strongly felt that design was a service industry, very engineer-like, you know, such as the Paul Rands of the world, where everything is on a grid and completely in service of a company. And then you had the people who felt that graphic design was meant to be expressive of uh, political beliefs and uh, more so stemming from kind of an artistic impulse. And that started happening in the, in the 60s. It really started coming to a head. And it's still, that divide still totally exists. Yeah, um, and they're and, both right, right? And they're no both one's, correct. No one's wrong. Yeah, they're, they're both totally correct. And again, it's, it's context. And I think I went through a phase where I was really, really bent on design as a service because I was working in the government. And that is all about service. And if we hired designers, I had to be like, 
you know that you're a service provider, right? And, and not <laughs> to make that sound, for me, that's not a bad word, you know? And no, I know- not at all. As we've talked about, you know, I, maybe on this podcast, we've talked about, you know, um, um, Ralph Kaplan's quote about like, you know, we're all problem solvers and there's, it just depends on the context. A, when you're hungry, a short order cook is a problem solver. Uh, when you need something explained visually, a graphic designer is a problem solver. So these are really, really, imp- it's an important thing to do to provide a service for a person. Uh, but at the same time, I think now that I have distance from government, I see that maybe I was going a bit crazy there and that, <laughs> and that there is this, this place for kind of designer as, you know, as, you know, expression, as expressive, as an expressive person. And, and that's getting away from the grid and busting out of the grid and expressing something in the way you feel you want to do it in. Um, and, you know, I think that's not maybe as comfortable for some people. It certainly wasn't mm-hmm. as comfortable for me, again, working where I was working. But it's really, really important that all these things exist together. Whether or not you can be that expressive in a mainstream publication, I, I don't know. I don't know that it's totally possible for long term, but I think that's okay. I think that design is supposed to be, it is trend based and any experimentation, it's going to come and go. It's just the the deal. There's something I want to, I want to make sure we mention, which we've kind of been talking around a little bit. And that's like those two sides of that argument you mentioned, Chapel, as we said, they're both right. Nobody's wrong, right? Like graphic design is not meant to be anything. Graphic design is just the process of, giving shape and form to ideas, you know, on a, on a surface of some kind. <laughs> and, uh, but I think the important thing to, to note is that the, of, those, of that divide, like one side is clearly in power, right? The side that is making things that are, you know, quote unquote, practical, utilitarian, that is, you know, doing the sterile work. That's how you get the jobs at the places that pay well, right? Uh, the people making the experimental work, they're making their DIY posters and zines and, you know, they're doing their fun stuff, but no one's paying them to do it, right? They're not paying them a whole lot of money. And so I think that's part of the reason why the Bloomberg thing specifically was like, oh, here's an example of people doing experimental, expressive work, and they're doing it for a company. They're presumably being paid pretty well for their, for their labor. Here's somebody that's like doing the kind of work that we in some ways want to celebrate and they're doing it in a way that it's practical. But the fact that so few, you know, design studios, companies, whatever, hire designers that work that way means that, of course, all of the colleges and universities that teach graphic design and they teach graphic design with the goal of getting people jobs when they graduate, they're not going to teach to the thing that's not being hired because that's there's no that's not a great end game for them if they're trying to, you know, run their little business of being a school. And so the the thing that gets rewarded with money is the thing that self-perpetuates. And that's how we end up with this certain type of design that is in power and another type of design, which is, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an ideal in some ways that uh, in, in the world of capitalism is very hard to realize practically. Uh, and so when it happens on a rare circumstance, it's beautiful. And then when it stops happening, it's like, well, you know, capitalism done chewed it up as it always does. <laughs> well, it's weird to see, like, I don't know if you guys notice it, but when, so you see like the super experimental graphic design, which I only see from, you know, like people's personal tumblers or, you know, looking at what's coming out of Yale or the people really into like Meta Haven and all this stuff. Yeah. 
So you see all this. And then once you really get into the workforce, you start to see how those designers who really idolize that stuff, how they're kind of trying to make it work in the mainstream. And you see how these underground or like indie trends become mainstream. And you see it all over the place because this is, I mean, this is kind of like they were, they were, uh, you were, if you're raised, you know, quote unquote, raised in college on looking at these tumblers and seeing this sort of visual language, you, it, you adopt it, you know, whether consciously or not. And, um, and so you see these trends or, and like, I feel like every right now, the major trend of like every website and subway ad is like where the background looks like someone's sneezed confetti on yeah. on it and it's like little doodles little squiggles and mm -hmm. triangles and i'm like is this because like all designers right now are of age that they all had like trapper keepers growing up i can't <laughs> i can't totally like get it but i know that a lot of these these elements these squiggles and all that are coming out of you know more experimental work and it's just it is ever so slightly influencing very, you know, straight and narrow capitalism ad yeah. agency work, you know? It, it's the sterilized version of that. They, they put squiggles on it, but they still, you know, it's all in a rectangle and they're nice evenly spaced and uh -huh. there's still white Gotham on top. Uh, that, that's, that way you know it's, it's, it's official and professional. Yeah, I mean, and you see it, you know, you see some websites start to to take that aesthetic on you know like the outline is probably the best example i can think where th those are whoever designed that and i'm not sure who did but they clearly had a lot of visual references they are very thoughtful and they kind of pushed the web design like to the edge of what would be considered like a pretty pretty like average user experience but at the same time with visual elements that make it feel a little bit more risky. The other thing I always keep coming back to, and this is totally a law of the instrument thing, right? Because most of what I design is software, uh, not, you know, editorial work. I have to wonder, like, where is the experimental voice in, in software, right? Where is the person making the interesting, out there, you know, expressive kind of app or whatever? And, uh, you know, mostly that doesn't, doesn't exist, I don't think. And partially, I think it's because... Snapchat the, exists in the world. There's a Snapchat. Well, I was going to say, Snapchat is the one example. The other one I can think of, and people may disagree with me on this, but uh, that camera app, VSCO, which mm -hmm. I have on, on, at times downloaded and opened and tried to understand. And it's just like, it's, a, it's like looking at an alien control panel where like nothing is in the language I speak. And it's just you know, various shapes all over the place and gestures to do everything. Like, it very much is an interface that you have to assume from looking at it, they didn't sit down and say, we need to make this as usable as possible to the widest audience, which is what almost sure. everyone does when they sit down to make an app. Uh, what instead, was that to-do app, Clear or something, where you, everything was a gesture and if you didn't read the tutorial, you didn't know how to use it? Yeah, that, that's, that's a, maybe an example too. Um, but, but yeah, I, I feel like uh, part of me has to wonder, you know, where is the experimental voice because we mentioned things like you know ray gun and emigre and these other kinds of examples from the 90s uh of like what i would consider to be like truly experimental work right and if the closest we have to that today is metahaven and tumblr uh is, is that the same kind of equal and then similar question in our industry or at least matt in my industry where we're doing software stuff uh it, 
I, I wonder sometimes if there's room for that kind of thing. And if the best equivalent we get is Snapchat and, you know, VSCO, however you, you pronounce it correctly. What is it, what is it Robin? Visco. Visco. Uh, I, I, like, I used to work with one of their designers, so I, I got a little understanding of how they work. Oh, can you maybe shine some light on that? Because I always felt like it was uh, like they were trying to make a really cool app and that, you know, for yeah. better or worse, they didn't. They, they, they definitely were not thinking the same thoughts I think when I designed an interface, which was like, I got to make this really clear. They were like making it cool and expressive, uh, for sure. which for me, never having, like I, I downloaded it a couple times and would try and use it and then just fail and I would give up. And I, it's the kind of thing I imagine where once you learn how to use it, it's fine because you have learned how to use it and it becomes like muscle memory. But, uh, but yeah, like that app has been successful. And so is Snapchat in spite of what I would consider to be, you know, really kind of breaking the rules of, you know, UI design, right? Like the, the rules we have, like don't make people think that kind of stuff uh, are being kind of thrown out the window. And those things are successful in spite of it or because of it, maybe. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say um, like calling Snapchat successful is, is difficult, right? Because like, and even like Visco too. So like it's successful to a, to a set of standards, right? Like they'll never be huge. Like I'm looking at Snapchat stock right now. Like that sold for like 3 billion and it's running at $18 a share right now. So like it's successful, but it's not really that successful. Um, and they have like a wall that they're going to hit and the outline's going to deal with it too. Cause it's that break in the mainstream. That's going to be hard for them to push forward. Um, in regards to Visco, like I think they're sort of a, a product of not being able to understand entirely what their product is going to be. Um, because when they first started off, right, like all that company was was a, a company that like produced like film um, processing, right? So like for actual cameras. Then they moved into like a like Adobe Photoshop like um, Lightroom sort of like install that you can get like your photos look like it's old film. And then like it pushed into app. And when it got into app, like obviously because of Instagram, they were one of the first people that that pushed that in the sense of like. Instagram's filters were designed because we uh, had really bad cameras, so they made everything look like crap to make it look interesting versus Visco, which like set out the understanding of making it look good from the beginning. Um, but when they pushed themselves as a company, they got into storytelling, and that's when they, they broke. Like They didn't know what their app was going to be, and you could see it. like the iconography for sure like it's a trash app to use and even if you do get the muscle memory down they change it every 45 seconds but like like as a as a product itself like they they just don't know what they are like they do this one thing really well which is photo editing but they they wanted more and i think as they as they pushed into more elements of their business they just lost it um they they lost the ability to have people update and you know understand what the, the ux was um so so they're weird and i do think there was a break of saying like how successful like some of these more interesting companies are like snapchat like they're, they're i mean they're low they're not that they're not that successful for how much they they sold for um i would love so. to be as successful as snapchat i will take that level <laughs> of not very successful yeah if, uh, i mean maybe it's like it's, it's a scale thing though like right like i mean i'm, I'm coming out of like a, an amazonian like headspace of like what how we sort of designed and it was just it was a sure. little bit different in 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 the scale in which we called success right um so i think you got to have like a a clear understanding of what success is. Like if for Snapchat, if they're thinking to stuff like, great, we just went public and our shares for $18. Like that doesn't feel like that successful. That feels like a, Ooh, wow. Your shares are only $18. Um, so it's, you know, it's how you define success. Like what level are you comfortable with calling success? Um, so I don't know. That's, that's what I'd say. 
Yeah. I, and I think, Andy, like, one thing about the question of, like, where is this, like, experimental software is, um, like, like I, if, you, if you could measure a physical magazine in the way that you can measure software, don't you think there'd be even less of it? Um, well, yeah, like, and that's part of what considering I'm it's at. like, yeah, considering it's a business, um, and there is like there is experimental software in the world, or like art software, or art games, or whatever that does exist, where that's the goal, right? Um, but I think we just have this. I think it's a combination of things you can't measure in magazines, um, and editorial, and also the idea that like editorial is a little bit closer to the art world than I think software is perceived as. Like I think software is very much like seen as a means to an end in business. And like, if we're, if we're just running it through the capitalist system, like you've already described what that does. So ruins everything. Not super shocking. Oh, I hate it so much. <laughs> oh, I'm getting mad now. I mean, I think there is something interesting about because, uh, I don't know what you call the kind of design that Snapchat started with, but because it was so, it felt so loose. Like it felt like the app could fall apart at any minute. Like it's just barely held together with string kind of thing. But what was so fascinating about, it, and I think what made it so successful among uh, younger people is that it created this kind of garden wall effect where, you know, younger people felt like that wall was just high enough that adults and people they don't want would just stay out on the other side of that wall. And they're right. Mm -hmm. I did. And, the, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, but what's fascinating about it and which people act like, you know, Oh, young kids, millennials, they don't even talk anymore. I use their phones. I mean, that's kind of true, but when it comes to Snapchat, what was amazing about it is because the design was so lacking, it could only be mastered by actually interfacing with another person. And so to see kids sit around, they would sit with each other and teach each other how to do it. And almost everyone I talked to who became really good at Snapchat, it was because someone sat with them and taught them. And I think yeah. that's actually a very interesting approach to software. I'm sure that's not intended. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they were yeah. like, let's design an app that gets people in a room together. But it is kind of part of what I think made it a success among younger people and made it something that felt very sacred to them. And I, I don't know, though, that it, you can... It's always that thing, like, can you grow with your audience? Can, like, a One Direction keep growing with its fans as they get older? Or do you just stay with young fans? You know, I don't know that I see it doing so well there. We're, we're talking about this kind of sliding scale of, like, whether, you, whether or not you can have a black and white answer of does it work or does it not, where I feel like in editorial, it's pretty fuzzy. Software gets a little bit closer, but we're also not talking. Nobody's asking, like, where are all the experimental airplanes? Because no <laughs> one's going to get on the experimental airplane. It doesn't no, work. there are doesn't experimental fly. airplanes. That's the whole thing. Exper like, basically, like, you know, Lockheed Martin and uh, North of Grumman have their, like, skunk works, their experimental places where they make absolutely insane airplanes that they should never make. They're so dangerous. The SR-71 Blackbird was built so that it could only be flying at like the speed of sound when it was sitting on the ground the gasoline would leak out of the plates <laughs> of the plane because if they made it so it was sealed on the ground when it got up to, to the speed of sound the heat would cause it to to fail so they had to make it so when it got up to the speed of sound the heat would cause the metal to expand and it would seal up like that's insane that's nuts but the, but the goal is still flying as opposed to i think i feel like in software we're just talking about the goal is being different and i think that's very different 
Well, but I know I know a lot about planes, and it's it's a perfect <laughs> example fun, because fun fact about Andy: if you bring up anything he knows a lot about, at least enough to impress you, enough to make you think. Wow, he... you all know a lot more about planes than I thought you did. Yeah, <laughs> I was just like, I th- I thought you were just gonna talk about like the experience of like, oh yeah, I just flew Virgin, and it was really nice, kind of like they had lights in the plane. <laughs> well, so <it> was- <laughs> this is the thing, right? Like, I, I Matt, I, I hear people kind of express that thing you're expressing, which is like, well, yeah. look, we're in software, we don't have room to be experimental, but like. All of the amazing stuff humanity has ever accomplished, even in the most strict, dangerous engineering industries, has been through experimentation and through doing stuff that people said couldn't be done or was totally out there. And you're right, it's not a perfect example because, you know, we set out with the goal of flying at, you know, Mach 3 or getting to the moon. And through that goal, we had to invent the microwave and all sorts of heat shielding and, you know, insulation that we now have we didn't have before that. And I I think in software, you're going to get the same thing is if you have some crazy goal you want to achieve with software, yeah, you're going to have to do a lot of weird experimental things because somebody hasn't done it before. But we're talking about things that people have done before. One more social network. Oh, well, we already have a way of doing it again. And uh, experimental is just a way of doing it weird that, you know, like... But like what... I mean, to be an old grandpa here, what, like, what did parallax, parallax scrolling do for us? Oh, peepaw. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. I mean, this is what I'm I- saying. This is, it's breaking out of the norms and it Nothing. did enable a lot of experimentation. But, you know, what's really wild is on the same coin, I can't pay a parking ticket online. So it's really yeah. weird how. There seems to be a pretty Bad priorities. massive schism in like, I want the experimentation, but I want something for like the normie side of my life. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of, I see the experimentation. I see that stuff. And I, I don't want to be a total grouch about it the moment it comes out and be like, yeah, it'll be gone in a, in a few days. I don't want to be that person. I want you to love fidget spinners. I want to think that they're good for society or whatever, but but the moment you see something, sometimes it's just like, cool, what is that? Where, what's, what's this for? Like, what's the next step here? <laughs> Aside from making, like, do you know how many ad agencies probably poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into parallax scrolling microsites? You know? Yes. And for what? To crash browsers? So that, so that when over? you scrolled, you go, ooh. Oh, yeah. That's why I think. <laughs> it's hun. Uh, I, I, I just like parallax scrolling too, but here's what I will say. <laughs> I think I think people underestimate what can be learned with the right approach if you are willing to be more experimental in your work. It's not that the thing that's experimental is always going to be better and you should just do the expressive out there thing because, you know, we believe that's better and, you know, that's what's important. But, uh, you know, back to my mortar analogy, I think if you allow yourself to maybe do something that feels wrong at first or is outside of the bounds of what, you know, the board of directors is going to accept because they're, you know, a bunch of stuffy old white guys sitting around a table. If you do something that's going to maybe push them a little bit, there's there's things you can learn from all the conversations you have internally about it, all the conversations you have with your users and your customers about it. Uh, and I think that's the one thing people kind of leave out of the conversation because it's so easy. That's something it's hard to measure, right? Like, how much did we learn? I don't know. Did we learn... $10,000 worth of lessons or, you know, it, it doesn't quantify cleanly. So you end up kind of discounting it. Um, but I do think that it's only through making the kind of out there work that you end up. And, you know, a, a really basic dumb example is that, uh, you know, when we're working uh, at, at my company on design things, we have a rule of like, 
make the thing that you think is ugly and show it to people. Like, if you make an ugly thing, you have to show it to everybody. Because even if you think it's ugly, and you're probably right, it probably is ugly, uh, there might be something redeeming in it that you're not seeing because you just only see the ugly bit. But you show it to somebody else on the team, they're going to say, hey, you know what? You're right. That is not good. We can never, you know, we can never put that on the internet or, or print that or whatever. But this one aspect of it is actually really interesting. Can we focus on that and kind of pull it out? Uh, and I think that that same approach, there's no reason that you can't take that same approach on a bigger scale uh, if you have uh, less strict rules about what you will or will not let out the door of your company, whatever you're doing. And absolutely. And now we're in the final word segment, and that's mine. Chapa, what's your <laughs> final word? Um, you know, if you always listen to music that sounds good or always watch TV that makes you feel good, you probably will not grow or at least grow so fast um as you could be right uh, and i to bring it back to business week as we did in the beginning i subscribed to that magazine because again they were trying new things but it also really challenged me and there were times i would open a spread and be like i don't know if i like this and that's a really good feeling to have in a world of so much sameness and when you immediately say, I don't know if I like this, it gives you an opportunity to really examine because that's just called bias. And it's a really great moment to examine bias. And then all of a sudden, maybe you're going to unlock some door that you'll get to walk through and you'll find this whole new like life you can live where all of a sudden, you know what? I do like googly eyes on pigs and I never thought I would. And so I think it is important to put this stuff in your path and in your way to keep challenging you. And even though, I mean, yes, I get a magazine isn't like the most challenging thing in life, but if you can challenge yourself visually, it's, it's going to help you expand so much and get to the next thing in your life. And that's my spiel. Preach. <laughs> Preach. Oh, I agree so much. I want to do a whole episode on taste because I agree so much with everything you just said. But <laughs> we've already been recording for an hour and 12 minutes. So uh, Matt, what's your, what's your final thought? I, you know, I feel like Chaplin that like I could almost defend either side of this because sometimes I am yeah. doing work and I'm happy and everything's great and I don't feel like <laughs> I need to be experimental. And then sometimes I'm very bored with what I'm doing and I'm like, I need to do something weird and experimental because I'm boring. Uh, but I do, I mean, the the one thing I do always come back to is like, uh, even just, just the question of like, is graphic design personal expression or whatever, like... Um, the the thing I at least I can do and I know will be right is trying to express logic some way. And I guess that's another way of just expressing myself because I think the logical thing is the right thing to do. Um, and also the world's not so logical and reasonable that that's even boring. Like I think we're actually in a, uh, I think we could uh, express logic a little bit better and maybe we'd be in a better world because people would do reasonable things. Um, so I don't know. I think that like that's the closest that I can come up with for like why I'm motivated to do any sort of design work is just try to express the logic of whatever I'm doing. Uh, and the only time ever, anything ever bugs me is if I think it's a style. If I think I'm just seeing like weird design because someone else saw weird design and they saw weird design and now it's just repeated. Uh, but if it's if it's an expression of what is best for that piece, that article, whatever, I'm all in. I love it. And I also get a kick out of it when I see it for the first time. Um, I want to see something new. Yes, please. I like that, Matt. You're like, ooh, you want me to be more expressive? I'll express. <coughs> Whoa. <coughs> Take you want me to be more expressive? I'm going to express my logic. Exactly. You're like, uh, I'll be very expressive. I will express my logic <laughs> to you. 
See here, my express logic. Look at this path. But couldn't the world use a little more logic, Andy? You know, the world could use a lot more of a lot of things and a lot less of a lot of things. That's a, that's a quotable for you. Robin, very... give us our final, final thought. I like weird design. I think it's fun and engaging. Um, if you want to make weird design, make sure you have a business buy-off before you do it. Um, so that way, when the, when the going gets tough, you can be like, hey, what's up? Remember we had that conversation? We knew this was going to happen, so you can't let go. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's important to do with any sort of design, but, like, especially if you're going to push the needle um, in an environment that, like, is kind of into it or kind of not into it, like, make sure that, like, you have everybody in the room being like, yep, we agreed to this. Remember, this is the thing. We knew this was going to happen. Um, so, you know, we are able to, like, engage in that content a lot stronger. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, I guess that's my final thought, which is we get buy-in and push the needle as much as you can and um, listen to not a surf in the process. Draft of a contract that says, Robin is going to make a weird design. I'm going to need everyone to sign on the bottom. And then there we go. We're safe. It's, well, that just like take somebody at the top. You'd be like, what's up? We're going to push this one thing. It might, you might get bad data or you might just get like a weird off put. Um, insight for two weeks but like let's commit to this for six months for three years i mean three years is a big commit um and then you know we make our assessment after that um i think ultimately like bloomberg business week started on the bottom got really up high and is now somewhere in the middle um and that's okay if you like to get weird design go and read the outline go read 538 go read vice um because those are where those designers went to push stuff um so yeah be the new generation of pushers we're all pushers. Started from the bottom, now we're somewhere in the middle. Bluebird design. We got a we got a good Drake quote in there. We got a good Mean Girls quote in there. <laughs> you actually quoted uh, Hamilton earlier, Matt. I'm not sure if you realize you did. You, <laughs> yeah. you know what? There's a, I, I bet there's a lot of times where I've said a Hamilton thing that I didn't pick up on it, but you did. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here biting my hand, like, don't <laughs> point it out. No one cares, and then I don't. Uh, all right. Thank you for making a podcast, both of you. This was a lot of fun. As always. Is there anything either of you would like to promote? Chapel, what do you want to promote? Anything? Uh, I just want to promote living life. That's it. <laughs> living life. Robin, what do you want to promote? Uh, not a surf. Um, not a surf again. Yep, that's, that's it. I'm, gi- I'm giving a talk in San Francisco on Friday, but it already sold out, so it's useless to promote. But it, it yep, might also this will come out afterwards. Be on the internet, so just listen to not a surf. As always, thanks to XYZ Type for sponsoring the transcripts. You can check them out at XYZtype.com. Get at us on Twitter and tell us what you think about the conversation tonight. At Working File, tell us what you think of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm the practical one. I'm the expressive one. I'm the very cool and busy one. Mm-hmm.